Hey GeoTrekkers, welcome to podcast number 54. This episode has a little bit of everything. We'll be talking about wildland fires, earthquakes, hurricanes, and winter storms. Deeper than the storms and disasters themselves, however, we'll get a lot of practical insights on preparedness and response from emergency management specialist John Stewart. This is one of those episodes that's relevant to everyone, even if you don't work professionally in disaster response or a related industry. All of us are threatened by extreme weather and natural disasters at some point, and the perspective shared in this podcast will help us all become better prepared. A little bit about the podcast, GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events, so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. If you're a fan of the podcast, you can help us stay on the air by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark professional progress, which helps us make more partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Okay, well, let's jump into this episode with John Stewart. In addition to his decades of professional experience, I think you'll really enjoy his sense of humor and quick wit. Now for a deeper introduction of this week's guest. John Stewart has worked in emergency management and homeland security for over 24 years, working closely with local, state, and federal clients. As a former state-level chief of preparedness, he knows that there are no pre-scripted answers to emergency management and believes in providing customized solutions to all his clients. Within the private sector, he has a strong track record of acquiring new clients and growing business with existing clients. He has provided direct emergency management support to over 200 different counties and cities in over 30 states, Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Virgin Islands. John, so great to have you on the GeoTrek podcast. Absolutely. Um, so do we need to address the elephant in the room that folks tuned in and they saw John Stewart and I'm not the guy on TV? Let's, let's, let's start there. I, I like that for a starting point. So explain this. I, I mean, for 30-ish years, I've gotten the John Stewart jokes ever since he first appeared on, and for folks who don't know, he first appeared on MTV uh, back when they actually showed music videos. And it's, it's been since, so it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, and I've just come to accept that uh, people see my name. Sometimes they get confused. I'm not going to lie. It got me dinner reservations in Los Angeles earlier this year. Nice. Cha-ching, ching. Hey, rock it while you can, right? When, when we arrived, the hostess was very confused when I said, no, I'm John Stewart. I just made a reservation. You could see the disappointment in her face when she's like, oh. <laughs> she's like, oh, I was thinking someone else. But hey, you got the reservations. And we got a very nice table. Nice. Hey, it can work out. So have there been times where maybe on paper or someone, I mean, there's an example where someone thought you were the other John Stewart. Have there been other times like that? Twitter. Okay. Early day, early days of Twitter, and I'm not on Twitter anymore, but the early days of Twitter, I got follows, I got some direct messages from other celebrities, um, and I, you know, I would message them back and be like, hey, I appreciate it, it's the wrong guy, and you should have seen that by the photo associated with the, uh, uh, with the account, but it's cool, but thank you. Man, that's pretty interesting. So my name is Hal Needham, and there's actually a famous stuntman by the same name 
He used to do a lot of work with Burt Reynolds. Um, in, in fact, I think there was a movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The guy that Brad Pitt played was Hal Needham, as far as I understand. And um, so, yeah, this guy did a lot of the stunts in the 80s, 90s, like Smokey and the Bandit, all these different movies. So when I did my first Hurricane film with PBS, they actually put on the IMDb database, there were like all these action movies from like the 70s and 80s. Then there's this 15-year gap, and then there's like Killer Typhoon. So for like three weeks, it looked like I was this famous Hollywood guy that turned into Hurricane Science. So I, I, I had my, my little window of popularity, and then they realized, wait, this is a different guy. He's only done one. He hasn't done 300 movies. So I had my, my, my moment of fame as well, but it was short-lived. So, John, you're, you're doing a lot of work, prolific work as well with a lot in emergency management, working with a lot of counties, a lot of states, a lot of municipalities. Could you walk us through, you know, how you got into that work as far as a career and, you know, explain your path to us? Very non-traditional. Um, and I tell this when I mentor a lot of kind of the next generation. So I uh, have a very relevant degree to emergency management. Um, by trade, I'm an archaeologist. Um, so uh, obviously didn't know anything about emergency management. And it, well, I so actually was a DOD analyst, and this was back in 1999. Wow. And a friend of mine said, hey, we're doing this thing. It's called an exercise. You should come to it. And I said, okay. And I went to it, and this was in preparation for Y2K. Yeah. And I, I, I sat there and I did it and I turned to him and I was like, so let me get this straight. People can do this type of thing for a living. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, how do I do it? How do I start to do this? Because I love this. Um, and so it was there. And it, I went from that to supporting, uh, at that point, it was the president's Y2K command center. Uh, so 99 to 2000 for those who weren't around or don't remember Y2K was supposed to be this big event, uh, and it wasn't. Um, and it was a lot of how this career worked through relationships, through meeting people at that, that led me to my next job. Um, and then really 9-11 happened and, and the industry kind of exploded after that uh, in terms of, you know, opportunities. So it was not a very direct path, but back in you know, the late 90s, 2000s, there wasn't necessarily a big emergency management field. What did you love about it? Was it the fact that it's so applicable? Was it the fact that you really enjoy kind of planning and thinking ahead? I mean, what about it really made you interested? Uh, so, so this is funny. My wife cringes sometimes when I tell this. Um, but it's cool now because it's popular. Um, so I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and it's, again, it's cool now. It's okay. But back then, it was not so cool. Um, and... When I grew up playing it, being the dungeon master, creating an entire world, keeping it in my head, and moving the pieces, the players around to accomplish objectives, it's a very similar thing to a large-scale exercise. You create an entire world in your head, and you want the people in the EOC or in the field to accomplish certain objectives, and how do you help navigate and move that? So one, it was very familiar. Two, it was just something I... I loved and enjoyed being able to see those pieces move and execute um, and having to adapt as they did different things. So it, it was one, a familiarity of something I always enjoyed as a kid. And then kind of two, realizing hey, you can make a profession out of this. 
Yeah, and there's almost this this fantasy. Sometimes you're almost having to visualize things that haven't existed yet. But then there's a strategic piece too. Like, oh, if this thing happens that we haven't seen before, then how do all the pieces play out, right? So, oh, 100%. And I, I remember I'd be, I mean, a hardship tour. I had to do a tsunami exercise for the U.S. Virgin Islands. So I know hardship, I had to go to the Caribbean uh, to do work. I got paid for it. Yeah, I get it. But it wasn't until after the exercise that I'm driving around and I was driving around with some folks from my team and the client. And I'm like, God, you know, this place is beautiful. And they're like, you, you've been down here once a month for six months. How do you not realize that? I was like, oh, no, for six months, as we drive around, I'm visualizing water inundation, buildings collapsed. I'm visualizing the destruction that will take place due to a tsunami so that I can map it out for the exercise. Now that that's done, I don't have to visualize that. I can actually see, you know, these places for what they are. So, yes, I mean, there, there's part of that of needing, it's the fantasy, it's the visualization to make it as realistic as possible for the people who are playing in it. It's almost like you were, from the time that you got on the ground, you were kind of living in this other world of what could happen. And then later in the game, you kind of caught up to where like the tourists are like, wait, this, this is a beautiful tropical paradise. Oh yeah, no, I completely get why people, uh, people go there. It's beautiful and, and you know, hey, folks should, should go there, it's, it's beautiful. You know, that relates so well with the field work we just recently did in Hurricane Ian where even all the science was aligning with, we don't quite know where the eye is going in, but just south of it, we're looking at a catastrophic storm surge and you had people on the ground that received the message that heard the, the flood forecast, but just said, I, I cannot imagine this forecast could be accurate. You're talking nine to 12 feet of salt water racing across the landscape. There's no way, right? But that's actually what played out. There is this sense of, of fantasy or, or visualizing what hasn't been seen yet sometimes with these major catastrophes. And that's a huge challenge when communicating with the public about them. I mean, you, you think and you tell someone nine to 12 feet of water and that just seems not just improbable but impossible and getting them to treat it seriously and we, we've seen that in Ian we saw it in Katrina I mean we've seen it time and time again where it is very much a challenge when doing community preparedness because people or people either can't believe it or they're like oh they're just they're making a big deal out of it because they want us to leave our homes Sure. So, so people might suspect, okay, the, I, I don't trust the government or I don't trust the messaging, but the science is aligning with like, wait, what's coming down the pike is, is really catastrophic. Even though you haven't seen it before, it, 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 it's possible or even probable. Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And, and then, so that's a really interesting example of you going to the Virgin Islands. I know you've gone a lot of places. You, you've worked with a lot of entities, whether it's federal government, state government, uh, territories, uh, you know, local municipalities, counties, parishes. You mentioned in your LinkedIn bio that you've realized that really these solutions need to be customized, that you, you can't just generalize one size fits all. How do you do that in your profession? How do you customize these solutions for the place you're working in? It's about listening and it's going in and talking to communities, talking to the emergency management agency and other stakeholders and understanding their needs and concerns. And it's, 
I also talk about when sometimes I present, you have emergency operation plans. And we've all, when it comes to plans, even trainings and exercises, we've all begged, barred, and stolen from one another in this industry. But that's not sufficient. It's not knowing where, especially when it comes to response, where are communities going to gather in times of disaster? Um, an old mentor of mine, uh, when I was with the District of Columbia, told me, if we know the little bodegas, the little grocery stores, the churches, the community centers, that day in and day out, the communities know, hey, that's where we're going to go in time of disaster. Well, that's where we need to send our resources to help them get ready before, during, and after a disaster at the same time. You're not going to know that by looking at a map. You're not going to know that by necessarily reading a plan. It, again, it's it, within emergency management. I, 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 again, it's a theme I, I tell folks and I tell my teams. It's the relationships. You've got to get out there and talk to people and, and have those interactions and get them to tell you what their community is like so you can help solve their problems. If you go in and just, and, and again, part of it is I'm from DC. I tell folks, you know, I go in places and they're like, oh, someone from DC, federal government, FEMA, this and that, you know, they're just gonna tell us what we need to know. I, I very often diffuse them from the start. I'm like, yes, I'm from DC. I can't help it. That's where I grew up. Um, but at the same time, I'm also going to tell you right now, I don't know your community. Um, and it's sometimes that bare honesty of help me help you. I don't know. So tell me, teach me so that I can help you. And sometimes you have to have that vulnerability to admit, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that builds a lot of trust, right? When you come in and say, Hey, you're the expert cause you're the local here. Or, you know, like you said, getting to know the local landscape before the disaster even hits. I think when you can come in with a, with a teachable perspective like that and deferring, you're going to get so far, right? Because you're not coming in as the expert in a sense, although you have a tremendous amount of expertise and a tremendous amount of knowledge of where to get resources. Still, you're, it sounds like you're, you're really wanting to build those relationships and network locally. It, it is. And then it's helping them say, you know, in small community in Florida, hey, we work with another community in Iowa, and they had a similar problem. Here's how they solved it. Not saying it's a one-to-one, -one, not saying that's the solution, sure. but saying, hey, it's drawing upon those national lessons learned that we can all learn from one another. And that's the, one of the advantages of being a consultant is I get to go into a lot of different communities and help them and draw those lessons learned, you know, out from them. John, you've been at this for a long time. I'm curious for your perspective through time, like how has emergency management changed now compared to say one or two decades ago? It has. And when you look at, you know, I talked, I talked about Y2K and pre 9-11, it was a very different industry. I mean, first of all, we tended to call it domestic preparedness or, I mean, there were different kind of catchwords that went with it. And when I told people what I did, they're like, you do, I don't, we don't even understand what you do. They hadn't even heard of that back in the day. No, they, I mean, they, they really hadn't. Um, and 9-11 happened and we definitely had a shift. And that's where we saw a lot of the grants that uh, states and counties and cities use. I mean, that's where UASI came from. That's where the National Homeland Security Grant Program came from post 9-11. 
And, you know, we saw this influx of money and some of it spent well, some of it spent not so well, you know, and, and that kind of continued on. Um, but there was very much the focus on terrorism and human caused hazards. Fast forward, then we got to Katrina. And again, we saw this huge shift post Katrina. Sure. More focus on natural hazards and things like at first it was global warming and climate change and some of those things started to come up and i would say post katrina there's kind of been that kind of level setting between natural hazards and human caused we obviously saw some different whether they be you know disasters or even things active shooter became a prominent thing that a lot of jurisdictions looked at so a lot of it has been hazard driven. I think the next big event in our industry was COVID. What we're going to look like coming out of COVID, I don't know yet. I mean, we saw some huge shifts. We saw things like virtual and hybrid training come about where you don't have folks dedicating a week to sit in a classroom and be lectured at. We saw a shift to online training because training had to continue on, but we couldn't all gather in a room. Um, we saw a shift to virtual exercises, especially when it came to things like tabletop exercises, where folks realized we just needed to be talking. We didn't necessarily need to be around a table. We also began to see a shift in how we do planning and realizing that I'm pretty confident saying pretty much every jurisdiction in America if you were an employee of that jurisdiction, you became a responder during COVID uh, because it was an all hands on deck perspective and realizing how many of our folks can be force multipliers. I was in a branch during COVID and we had people anywhere from our Department of Energy and Environment who did field assessments to look at uh, invasive plants uh, who became situation unit leaders. We had people who worked in, you know, public schools who, you know, became dispatchers and worked in operations sections. Why? Because they wanted to help their jurisdiction and they needed to fold in. And they realized, I mean, they didn't know ICS forms. They didn't even know what ICS was, but they wanted to learn and adapt. And I think that was one of the biggest things we saw was how do we look at what response looks like in a major event? So we're going to see another major shift in the next it's starting now i think we'll we'll see what the results of that shift are in another two to three years john it sounds like you're saying the whole industry can pivot when there's a mega event a 9-11 a hurricane katrina a covid pandemic and it sounds like though it, it takes a little while after that event was triggered and and now we're almost in a pivot stage where things are changing and settling in post covid and you, we kind of have a vision of what this looks like, probably more virtual type stuff and things like that, but it's, it's still kind of settling in, it sounds like. It, it is, and I do think we do pivot. Um, and I think that's a good aspect of our industry of learning to adapt and overcome. I mean, that, that is emergency management, taking a problem, working it, and overcoming it. And we've seen that with some of the major events and, and you know, those are the three that jump out and, and it's not going to be, that's not going to be the end of it. Um, I, I also think to a lesser degree, when you look at 
uh, Hurricane Ian and some of the storms we've had, especially when it comes to hurricanes. We're going to see some more pivot, especially in communities that are impacted by that. We're also seeing wildland fire, which I think a lot of folks viewed that as, to some degree, almost like a California problem, where it's popping up in more and more communities. And it's not just a summertime thing, it's a year-round thing. I mean, it was last December that Boulder, Colorado, and that community faced devastating wildland fires. So it is something that can be year-round and more widespread. So it is one of those where I unfortunately do think it's hazard-based that sometimes drives it, but it's, we also are an industry and a community that can take lessons learned from each hazard and apply them across the spectrum of different hazards as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we can take lessons that we're learning from fire country and apply that to hurricane country or, or things like that. And, you know, you're right. I, w- I was surprised to see the extent of these wildland fires. I mean, last year there were, there were, I think almost hundreds of them, if you map them out in the state of Texas, all the way up through the front range of Colorado, uh, like that, that Boulder Superior fire was very devastating. But this is a, this is not like, like you said, it's not just a California problem anymore. It's not, as well as I think a lot of folks used to look at maybe to a degree some of the Midwest and obviously the communities impacted by hurricanes of flooding, but you you look at flooding and you're seeing, you know, widespread impacts from that um, in, in communities as well. So it is learning, you know, kind of and adjusting, you know, from all of those. And there are aspects of our plans that can apply to a variety of threats and hazards. Um, and, and that's what we need. We can't just focus on some threats or hazards. We still need to be all hazards. Sure. Uh, but realizing some of those hazards are sifting with us, um, you know, each and every year. Yeah, that's true. And that has to do, I think, with, with maybe some, some changes with climate and environment, but also changes in population pattern. And that brings us back to where you live. I mean, you're up there in the D.C. area. As far as I know, very explosive growth over the past 15 to 20 years. I mean, tremendous growth in places like Northern Virginia, parts of Maryland. I grew up in Pennsylvania where most years we would get at least one or two decent snowstorms, but a lot of my friends moved to near or south of D.C. And something I noticed from talking to them Sometimes they'd go four, five, six years, no major snowstorms. But then all of a sudden they could get a blizzard as bad as anywhere, you know. And so I was recently looking over the Northern Virginia climate history from a utility provider. And they were showing, you know, three major winter storms between 1993 and 1996. Then really nothing that made their list for 13 years. And then from 2009 to 2016, you had these mega events like Snowmageddon and all these other, you know, big time blizzards in in the D.C., Baltimore, all the way up the I-95 corridor in this area where you have a huge, hugely dense population. I mean, what is it like to live in a place where you may get clocked by a 35 inch blizzard this year or you may barely get any snow at all? Uh, having grown up here, uh, it's normal, um, but it is, you, you just never know. Um, and it is, so I've had, growing up here, I've certainly lived through them as a civilian. Um, and from that perspective, we're like every other community. The forecast comes in, people run to the grocery store and buy, uh, at least up here, it's milk and toilet paper and bread. Um, those are, those are the first to go. Um, 
you know, and sometimes you just have a huge surplus of them and nothing happens. And sometimes you get walloped uh, by them. I, I think most folks here know that if we get one of those blizzards, eh, you're going to be at home for a couple of days. It's not like the Northeast or other places. It, the plows just don't come around. You're, you're going to be at home, sit by the fire, go sledding with your kids. Sure. I think in I, I, post-COVID, we can all keep working because we all teleworked uh, for, for, you know, a year or more. Um, so there's that perspective. In my time with the District of Columbia, and, and I got to work both some smaller uh, storms, and, and I was there when Snowzilla happened. And I don't know where it is elsewhere in the country. We love to name our storms really cheesy <laughs> names. Um, I was actually talking about it with my son this morning when I was taking him to school and mentioning coming on the podcast. And he's like, he's like, do other places name their storms? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. But we, we love a, we love a nice media headline storm name. You have like Snowzilla. There was Snowmageddon. What are some of the other names, right? Uh, we've had Carmageddon, uh, Carmageddon 2. <laughs> um, there was another one and I'm drawing a blank on it. But yeah, no, the media, the media loves a good storm name. Um, so in Snowzilla, you know, that was one where huge, uh, huge amounts of snow had been probably about six years since our last major blizzard. So a lot of folks did forget. Um, but it was one where schools were shut down for about a week and people complained about the length of time it took to plow roads. But one of the biggest problems was there was so much snow at least in the district, not all of our snowplows were rated to move that amount of snow. Oh, it was so deep that some of the snowplows couldn't even really move that much snow. No. So, I mean, that was some of the delays is because it doesn't make sense for us to have on the regular plows that can move that much snow. It's not something that we regularly get impacted by. But how large spread the storm was, it took us a while to get those resources in. So those are ones where I, I think for the most part, folks get that. Um, it's some of the smaller ones that I want to say trip us up more. Um, and, I, and I mentioned Carmageddon, um, and they made Carmageddon too. And those are really storms that happen at rush hour. And that's where a, a storm in the evening rush hour that's going to start three eight o'clock maybe four o'clock that's that's what's going to trip at least us up as a region more because everyone's on the road uh everyone wants to go home and you get the mixture of traffic whether or not the roads were treated lots of snow people not used to driving in snow necessarily um i don't know how it is in other parts of the country uh, at least up here, folks love to abandon their vehicle. Uh, they just give up. Um, and when they abandon their vehicle, they don't necessarily pull it off to a shoulder or side street or anything else. They'll just leave their car in the middle of the road and walk away. They'll just call it a day, say, I'm done with this. I'm getting out. I'm leaving my car. Yeah, they just leave it in the middle of the road, which then causes even more delays. Um, and so those are the ones, and I mean, I remember those since I was a kid of... And, and most of those are stories growing up of my dad getting stuck in traffic um, and things like that. So, I mean, those are the ones. And, and you have folks stuck sometimes in their 
cars, because of how congested the area is, eight, 12 hours in the cold, in their cars where they're trying to conserve gas. So whether or not they're using their heater, they definitely don't have food. They probably don't have water. Um, and, and those are some serious life-threatening incidents. And then we saw it not necessarily in the national capital regions, but just south of us last year on I-95, where it was a similar quick-moving storm that shut down I-95, a major thoroughfare on the East Coast for several hours, and you had folks that had to sleep in their car overnight. Um, and that, you get those plummeting temperatures. That's, that's life safety. And John, my understanding, you don't need a foot of snow for this to happen. It could be a couple inches of snow or a little bit of ice, right? Couple, couple inches. Um, and it's, be, you know, at, and because of our congestion, it's a couple inches that get the road slick, that cause a couple accidents. Um, and you get a couple multi-car accidents on some of our two-lane highways. And that shuts it down and shuts it down because responders can't actually get there. Right. So now the police, fire, the rescue, they can't even get to the site. Yeah. And I mean, that, those are, are some of the problems. Um, and it is, again, this is one where I'm curious, uh, I will freely admit folks, it's a slightly morbid curiosity of what one of those storms will look like post-COVID, where we don't have as many people commuting. Um, and does that necessarily lessen the impact? Um, I would say hopefully, but I know in this area, again, I've, I've lived here uh, almost 40 years now. We, um, when it comes to those, the rush hour type storms, folks necessarily don't learn. I mean, I, sure. when I first started my career, knowing that actually just hearing about it from my dad and even just first kind of getting into this industry, uh, I had in my office uh, cans of soup, uh, a couple, and this again, folks, is dating myself, some VHS tapes to watch some movies uh, and a sleeping bag because there were times, I mean, I worked on a good day commute an hour and a half from my house. In a snowstorm, I realized there's no point in trying to get home. I was just going to get stuck or end up stranded in my car. Right. So, you know, if it snowed in the afternoon when I was at work, I just stayed there and, you know, had enough like, I had heat, I had internet uh, for what it was worth back in that day. Uh, I had my VHS movies and I had a sleeping bag um, and that was going to be that. But I mean, better that than being stranded in my car for hours. That's an interesting lesson, though, for people, whether they're at work or at a, at a family member or friend's house. Sometimes maybe you are better just to stay put for the night and be prepared. But it sounds like you had to think ahead with that. Maybe you have a change of clothes, a toothbrush, some canned food, you know. But, but again, it's, it beats the alternative of being stuck on I-95 for 12 hours. And, and that's actually a great point. And it goes back to what we were saying where you can share lessons learned. So you go out to California and they recommend everyone having that go kit in the back of their car, food, water, some staples. And they have it because of an earthquake, because an earthquake can happen at any time. And if you're commuting at any time and an earthquake happens, you may be stuck on a highway because a bridge is destroyed, part of a road's destroyed. So they teach folks, hey, have that in your car so that you can help sustain yourself until help arrives. Great thing to take for communities that have winter weather of, hey, have in your car some bottles of water, some protein bars, um, some, some blankets or a sleeping bag, some things to help you make sure that you can get through if something happens and you get stranded. 
Um, and you know what? At the end of winter season, if you don't need them, well, you drink the bottles of water and you got some protein bars to eat at another point in time. But having those kits in a vehicle can even help alleviate the need for uh, if you do get stranded somewhere. Well, and it's amazing, right? How much would a gallon of water and four protein bars cost? We're talking a, a couple dollars probably, right? But that can make a huge difference if you're stranded somewhere for 11 hours. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it can be, um, especially if you've got some for yourself and if you're lucky enough to share with some people, it can literally be life-saving. Yeah, that's such good perspective. And I like how you're moving examples from say California earthquake country to places that have winter storms, right? This is how we can share these lessons learned from one geographic place to another. Absolutely. And I mean, you're down in Texas. I mean, you all saw with the winter storms you had a couple of years ago where not frequent for all of you. So you may not be thinking about it, but is something that can certainly happen. Yeah, for sure. I remember we, I lost power where I was for three or four days and a lot of our homes are elevated without heat. So all of a sudden you had people's homes getting in the 30s or even even sub-freezing. I lived in Alaska for three years, so I had all this Arctic gear. I was just, I, I just laid in bed in my Arctic sleeping bag reading books, but I was thinking, what's my neighbor doing who probably did not live in Alaska and probably doesn't have a, a sleeping bag rated to 20 below zero, right? So it, it does get us thinking about maybe even being prepared for the hazards that's less common, like a freeze in Texas or a snowstorm in Texas. It is. And I mean, FEMA does a great job with promoting their make a plan, have a, have a kit. Um, and it is when you are able to do so, you know, that's great. I know not every person, every community, every family has the resources to, to be able to do that. Um, in, in DC, we had a lot of food insecure communities where they couldn't have three days of food because, you know, stockpiled in case of a disaster because they didn't have 24 hours worth of food on a good day. Yeah, um, sure. But I mean, it is going back to your example of what is your neighbor doing of communities taking care of communities. Um, and you do see that in a lot of places. And you definitely see that post-disaster where folks checking on one another, sharing resources, you know, where they can uh, and, and having worked you know, at a city level, that is something that's where you can move a lot of the needle where, you know, if communities are taking care of one another, yes, supplement them when you can help them when you can. But if you also know they have resources to help one another, it, it helps you sometimes refocus where your priorities are as well. John, I'm guessing a lot of that is relationship building before the disaster even strikes, right? It, it, it is. And it goes kind of back to the example of knowing those bodegas and those churches. It's knowing knowing your community and knowing where you have food deserts and where you have uh, sometimes, you know, our most vulnerable and underserved communities and having plans in place to, to try and help them. Um, during COVID, one of the missions I was on was, you know, we we're telling people during COVID and, and it, you know, Similar to you know any disaster, we're telling people, hey, if you've got COVID or you were exposed or something else, quarantine for two weeks. Don't leave for two weeks. Well, I don't know how it was in other parts of the country. You couldn't get groceries delivered uh, at the start of COVID because everyone was having that done. Uh, you couldn't often get 
you know, if you had money for Uber Eats or DoorDash or things like that, maybe, but some folks telling them, hey, quarantine for two weeks, how are they going to get food? Sure, how are they sure. going to, so we set up a program where folks could fill out a survey or call, um, for us, it was 411 and say, I'm quarantined, I need food assistance. And we would deliver them a box of shelf-stable food for two weeks. Now, it wasn't great food. You had rice, you had some beans, you had, you know, some other canned goods. Um, You were not making some gourmet meals out of it, but you had food for two weeks. Um, And we did that. And for those that couldn't cook, we made, you know, other options available for them. But again, it's, knowing the community and forecasting what those needs are so that, because we knew if we told people, Hey, quarantine for two weeks, but you're not going to have food. You're not going to have groceries. You're not going to have anything else. They're not going to do it. They're going to leave. I see. So you have to be aware of their, what their life looks like. Like, wait, that's easy for us to say quarantine for two weeks, but they're going to be going hungry after four days. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's in any type of disaster, it's balancing what that, and again, it goes back to the, you know, you know, have 72 hours, you know, worth of food. Okay, well, that's great if folks can do that. So we also knew in some of our communities, we needed to set up pods. We needed to bring food to the people and say, in those communities, we know we said this, we know you can't, we're going to help provide you food because we know the grocery stores are closed or in COVID you can't get out and things like that. But it's knowing, hey, send it to that community maybe we don't need to send it to some of the more affluent communities because they can probably are a little bit more self-sufficient and, and have the resources. So it is, as you said, it's the relationships and knowing your communities and knowing the needs of those on the blue sky and the gray sky days. Yeah, I really like that. And it shows some things that we can do before a disaster even hits to kind of prepare. And then you're giving a lot of great examples here that I think can apply to whether it's a pandemic, a public health crisis, or say a natural disaster as well. Yeah, I, the, and we've seen that in, in all of the disasters where COVID was a little bit different, but you have, whether it be a storm, whether it be a hurricane, you generally have eight, 12-ish hours, sometimes more of like when the disaster is hitting, when the snow is falling, when the hurricane winds are falling, when the rain is falling, and then it's done. And while response doesn't end there, that's also kind of where the recovery starts to begin. And it's knowing that that's where the amount of time, it's not that eight to 12 hours necessarily, it's the time before that and it's the time after that where both as helping our communities where we can move the biggest needles is getting them ready and then being right there to support them once the sun comes back out again. You're saying pre-storm and post-storm are really, I guess they're a lot longer than the duration of the storm itself. Yeah. But we tend to, I mean, but you even look at that when, and I'm not trying to slam them, but it's what drives a lot of public opinion on a lot of things. Watch any news station. It's the couple hours leading up to a storm or sometimes the days you've got always like the national weather service people that are, you know, standing out there with the wind gusting during a hurricane or standing in knee deep snow during a snowstorm. And that's what a lot of focus gets put on, but most folks can hunker down for that short term. 
it's getting them ready before the storm hits for those days, weeks, months afterwards. So you get the storm chaser with his or her hair blowing around in the eye, you know, near the eye of the storm and all this stuff that gets a lot of the viral and then the spread online. But then it's the maybe two weeks after that where people are living without power and utilities that may be a lot more of a hardship for people than those those six hours of strong winds, right? It it absolutely is, and you're and we'll see just because of the season we're in. I have no doubt we'll start to see some. The media will come back and have stories, whether it's Kentucky, Louisiana. Colorado, Florida, probably even still some in Texas of folks that because of a disaster, they still might not be in a home or their homes destroyed or some of the hardships because we're coming into Thanksgiving and Christmas and those drive stories. Um, but yeah, no, there are still folks that are weeks, months uh, after a disaster that their lives turned upside down and they are getting the support that, that whether it be private sector, the state, the city, uh, FEMA, they're providing as much support and assistance as they can. But individuals that have faced a disaster, it, it can be years uh, for them to, to recover and get back into sometimes a permanent housing solution um, and, and not be living in, in a trailer or in a shelter or something else. Um, but that's you know, unfortunately, storms pass and, and, you know, our attention span shifts, but it doesn't change for those who are on the ground. Yeah, John, you're spot on about that. It really is the long duration. And for some people, they can't even imagine a life where they can't come back to their home for a week or two or where it takes them months to years to kind of get their community to recover. And that's where the great work that you and others in emergency management that you've seen the timeline, you've seen this from one community to another, I think you can come alongside these communities and help, help. I think part of it's aligning people with reality. And sometimes it's a harsh reality. Oh, I thought my life was going to be turned upside down for a week. And you're telling me this might be months to even longer. You know, it sounds like there, there is that uh, unfortunate alignment with reality. And the new reality is sometimes hard, a hard pill to swallow, I think, for folks. It is. And it's, it's always going to be an ongoing effort. And it kind of goes back to, you know, what we we're talking about at the start with hurricanes and storm surge and things like, like that. We need in a lot of ways to help people understand that reality. Um, and it's part education. It's part giving them the resources to understand that. We're never going to completely changed people's minds. I sure. forget which hurricane it was, but my grandmother, it, it was impacting Myrtle Beach and my grandmother didn't want to evacuate. And I'm activated in an EOC. My parents are calling me because my dad's mom won't leave sure. Myrtle Beach. And I'm like telling them, I'm like, guys, I'm in an active response myself. Like I, I can't, I can't help grandma here. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even like me calling her and like trying to convince her and she's like, nope, we're going to be fine. And you can sometimes give people all the information, even from a loved one from a trusted source, and they're going to turn a blind eye. That doesn't say we shouldn't try. Sure, sure. But it's also the reality of 
you know, we're not going to get everyone, but the more people we can get yeah. prepared and, and realize this new reality, the better off, not just in emergency management, but communities are going to be. John, is some of the complacency just that the most severe storms, the most catastrophic storms, they can almost be completely outside of people's frame of reference, right? Like what is about to happen, they've never seen or imagined this, right? It's not just a little worse than the worst thing they've seen. It's, it's, it's light years worse than the worst thing. Is that part of it? Just that what's about to happen in some of these worst cases, it's completely outside the frame of reference, perhaps. It is. And, and Hurricane Ian is a great example. Florida is no stranger to hurricanes. It's been a while since they've gotten hit by a hurricane, but a lot of folks there know what it's like to live through, uh, through a hurricane. They heard some of the forecasts, they heard some of the information, and they said, oh, I've lived through this, I've lived you know, through that. Natural disasters, whether it be a hurricane, snowstorms, we talked about you know, wildland fire, flooding, it's all changing. I mean, Ian's a great example, and, and we saw it you know, last year, too, of these storms that go from barely a named storm to a tropical storm to on the cusp of a hurricane category five in days. And then there are storms that just, they produce more water, more flood inundation, more storm surge than storms of the past. So part of it is helping communities recognize it's not just, yeah, you've lived through one, but all of these things are changing. All of these things are shifting and what you may have known may not necessarily be true anymore. And that's not... Climate change, it, it tends to be this, you know, you know, hot potato and political issue. Regardless of people's takes on it, the facts are the facts that these things are changing. And the sooner we can get our communities to prepare for these shifts and recognizing that in the past, a storm like Ian may, may not have been a big deal to a community. But moving forward, these storms are going to be huge for them. And, and getting them to recognize, yeah, you, you may not be able to sit, you know, this one through and stay in your home. And yeah, it sucks to evacuate. Nobody likes to do that, but it, it, it can save you a lot. John, really a fantastic in-depth perspective there. Just th we've covered a lot of ground on this podcast. We've talked about hurricanes, snowstorms, earthquakes, fires. We've, we've covered a lot of ground. And what I love about our conversation, I think it does not just apply to people in hurricane country. We're talking all hazards here, all geographies here. So this, this conversation, I think, will apply to millions of people, regardless of where they live, really. And, and it is. I mean, it's taking, as, as we said, depending, it, it's not necessarily, threats and hazards change this industry, but there are things you can take from, you know, there are things that people in South Dakota uh, that may be facing a blizzard can learn from folks that went through Ian in Florida. Um, John, last question. Let's say you're at a barbecue, you meet someone, you shake their hand, you have two minutes to explain what you do, and maybe, maybe uh, you know, people talk about your elevator thing. If you had a, a minute to tell people one concept that would stick with them, what would you tell people in that, you know, a big picture, a last take-home point about emergency management? What would you want people to know? Listen to your emergency manager. Um, and, and that's the, and, and because folks will either say, what's an emergency manager, who's my emergency manager, or even like, what are you talking about? Um, but it is 
whether it's signing up for an alert system, checking out most emergency management departments have a web page. Um, if not Twitter, Instagram, I mean, I think even some of them have Snapchat nowadays. Uh, I don't know if they've gotten onto TikTok, but regardless of what it is, get to know your emergency management agency and your emergency manager, because they're going to be the ones that are going to push out the relevant information for you um, and, and your community. So, I mean, that's really what I tell folks because it inevitably sparks additional questions. So I get more than two minutes with them. Yeah. Um, but it is, again, any, for anyone who's listening, you have an emergency manager. It may, it may be someone it's part-time. It may be someone that has a full staff. Um, but somewhere you have one and they've got some really good information to share with you about how to keep you safe during a disaster. John, you might be the third guest we've had in the past several months that works in some entity with local governments, emergency management. And I think all three of you have had that same take home point of getting to know your emergency manager, you know, signing up for the newsletters, going to community meetings. A lot of people have no idea that this stuff even exists, right? It, it, they don't. Um, and again, it's, we're not as, everyone knows a firefighter. Everyone knows um, the police officers because they see them and they're out there. Um, emergency management's a little bit different. We're, we're often behind the scenes. Um, and it's, but we're ones that have a lot of good information to kind of bring folks together. Um, so it is, uh, you know, again, we go back to when I started, people didn't even know what I do. There are still some folks who don't understand what I do. Um, but it is, you know, a very passionate uh, community and a very passionate uh, profession um, who are, are really people who sign up to do it. None of us are ever going to get rich doing it. Um, our benefit is making sure that we're helping the people in our communities. It seems like a very tight network. And like you said, the emergency managers I know are very passionate about it. They, they, they're doing this, like you said, not for the money, but they want to help and serve their community. Very last thing, John, if I come traveling with you sometime, could you guarantee we get some good tables and restaurants because of your name? Can we just put your name on the reservation? We, we can. I don't, it, like I said, it's worked about uh, once, but I'm very passionate about food. So uh, even if we can't get in, I can guarantee you we're going to get some good restaurants. Well, I like eating too. If it happened once, it could maybe happen again. You know, uh, it's worth a try. John, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Man, our listeners are going to love this episode. I think we covered a ton of relevant info. Best, best wishes to you. I'm hoping you get a winter up there in the D.C. area without any snow or ice. But if it does come, I think you'll be as prepared as anyone up there. Well, I appreciate it and I appreciate you having me on. It was a great time. Wow, what a great conversation with John. A few major points really stood out to me from our interview. Number one, disaster preparedness and response really does involve some level of imagination that can almost border on fantasy or visualization. In the most catastrophic events, we're trying to prepare for something that may have not even happened in recording it recorded history at a specific location. The most effective disaster communication acknowledges this and basically comes alongside locals to say, you're right, this almost does seem unimaginable, but we need to believe the science and the models to say like something really catastrophic that we haven't seen in our lifetimes can happen. John touched on this with his story about tsunami preparedness in the Virgin Islands, but this story relates to any place that's prone to disasters. 
Number two, I really love John's focus on building relationships before a storm even hits to help response before, during, and after a disaster. He shared profound insights about the importance of knowing a community and deferring to locals who understand the fabric of their community and know the local landscape. It takes a lot of humility and maturity to take this approach, but it's so much more effective than coming in as a know-it-all from the outside. Really cool stuff there. Number three, the impact of extreme weather depends a lot on the timing and location of the event. A few inches of snow at rush hour in Washington, D.C. may actually have a bigger impact on people than a few feet of snow in the Rocky Mountains. It doesn't take much for a weather hazard to have a huge impact if it hits a populated area at a crucial time. And again, I mean, think of heat waves, right? 95 degrees in Houston, Texas, not a big deal. It happens a ton in the summertime. Everyone has AC. You take that 95 degrees up to Vermont, New Hampshire, or Maine, where most of the people don't have air conditioning up in the mountains and all of a sudden that could be a big public health event. So really a lot of it relates to where something's hitting and the timing of it as well. Number four, I love the perspective of having a survival kit in your car or overnight supplies in your office. Every year, motorists get stranded in some city in severe winter weather. Having water, snacks, and a blanket in your car could actually save your life. And if it's possible, staying in your office or in the home of a friend or family member could help you avoid getting in a disaster altogether. But some of this response takes planning, like having a toothbrush, blanket, change of clothes at a strategic place. So we really have to think ahead. But I like what John was saying there. Sometimes he'll just have a blanket, cans of soup, a VHS tape, and, you know, and a sleeping bag at his workplace so he can avoid just getting out not or not getting out on those icy roads if there's going to be a traffic hazard up there in Washington, D.C. Number five, finally, I thought John's perspective was interesting that pre and post storm response can have the biggest impact on people in disasters. The media often focuses on those six to 12 hours when heavy snow is falling or hurricane winds are blowing, but it's the days before and the days after the event that can have the, the biggest difference in helping people prepare and recover. So a lot of great insights there. John, real, you know, there's a lot to think about in this episode, and I think it's really timely for us because we're actually transitioning now from hurricane season to the start of winter weather. And so we've covered all these things, really a large range of talking about hazards, disasters, and preparedness that will relate to anyone. So thank you so much for taking time to come on this podcast and share your wisdom with us. A huge thanks to Brandy Mai, podcast guest number 50, and her friend, Tim Riker, who corresponded with me from his travels in Bavaria, Germany, to set up this interview with Jon Stewart. I'm hoping to get John and, and Tim together on a future episode of the GeoTrek podcast. As always, special thanks to our GeoTrek production and marketing team for making all the magic happen behind the scenes. So thank you to Seneth Baker, Ashley Anderson, Jeremiah Long, Christopher Cook, and Amy Wilkins. I'm Dr. Hal. Stay safe, stay prepared, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. <laughs>